I know most of you, uh, most of you know me, just in case I'm Charlie, I'm one of the elders here. Um, and we're going to be starting a series in Titus now with uh, Dan's lovely graphics up there. Uh, you can ask him what our new church strap line is later if you like. Um, next four weeks we're going to be looking at Titus. Um, it's a fairly short letter, so in a moment what we're going to do is read through the whole thing. I've asked a few other people to pop up and read it so you get a break from my voice. Uh, And then this week, I'm going to try and give you a few thoughts about the whole letter. So, three themes for us to hang the rest of our understanding from. And then we'll have some time, as usual, for uh, response and prayer afterwards. Um, Before we start, though, let me pray for us, and then we'll get reading. Father God, please uh, send your spirit to be with us now. Be at work in our hearts. Equip us and train us and teach us, Lord. Please give me the right words and the right mannerisms to convey truths from this letter. Please give us hearts which are are ready to learn, which are ready and willing to turn to you to look at you. Amen. Amen. Let's read Titus then. So Liz is going to pop up, and then Andy, and then Andy. Um, So Titus chapter 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and which now, at his appointed season, he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Saviour. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced, because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said it, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient and unfit for doing anything good. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled and sound in faith, in love and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, 
not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Saviour, attractive. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness, and to purify for himself the people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility towards all men. At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. For when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us, and not because of any righteous thing we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and, and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and I want you to stress these things, so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law, because these are unprofitable and they're useless. Warn a divisive person once, and then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him. You may be sure that such a man is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. As soon as I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, because I have decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way, and see that they have everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good, in order that they may provide for daily necessities and not live unproductive lives. Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Grand, thank you. So, we don't know much about Titus or, or this letter, really. A rough guess puts it around 60 or 65 AD. Um, we, we think what happens is that after Paul goes to Rome and is imprisoned, he eventually gets released. And he goes on another round of missionary journeys, planting and visiting churches before returning to Rome and again being arrested and then killed under Emperor Nero. And we think that Titus is one of Paul's travelling companions. 
So, before and after his first imprisonment, he was travelling with Paul, and there are a few other references to him here and, and there throughout the New Testament. We, we think that, like Timothy, he was one of Paul's young protégés, a, a trusted, servant-hearted gospel worker, my true son in our common faith, from verse 3, or verse 4, sorry. We get reference to him in Galatians 2, where we find that he's not of Jewish stock. He's a Greek convert. And Paul refuses to have him circumcised to make the point that salvation is by faith alone, not by slavish adherence to Judaic law. And then later on, when things go pear-shaped in Corinth, it's Titus that Paul sends to carry a letter to them. It's a, a lost letter in between 1 and 2 Corinthians, which is rebuking them. And then it's Titus coming back to Paul with good news about how they've responded, which, which sets him writing 2 Corinthians. So like Timothy, Titus is one of Paul's henchmen. He's one of the lieutenants. He's a, a safe pair of hands to look after and to establish young churches. And then to bring them back onto the straight and narrow if needed. And so what seems to have happened here is that Paul and his party have set off from Rome, travelling and preaching and church planting, and then they've got to Crete, and they've either been met with success and planted some churches there, or or possibly they've encountered churches and groups of Christians which were already there. Um, There were Cretans at at the crowd in Pentecost, so it's quite likely that 30 years later, some of them had returned home, that congregations had begun. Paul and his party, they they meet these Christians, they teach them a bit, and then it's time to move on. They want to get on with the journey, they want to get on with spreading the gospel, but the church in Crete isn't ready. It can't stand alone yet, and so Paul leaves Titus behind for maybe a couple of months, maybe a year. And we see in chapter 1, verse 5, he has this task, putting the church in order. He describes that church as unfinished. It needs a leadership established. And it needs a right outlook on what church is meant to be like. And it needs clear enough teaching on the gospel that the people there won't be confused or dismayed or led astray. And obviously the the fear is that if Titus doesn't do his job well, then these fledgling churches could fizzle out. They could come to nothing, and the knowledge of the gospel on Crete could vanish. It could get swamped and drowned out by the surrounding culture. And so, I think the question to have in mind for us when we're reading this letter is, what is it that Paul reckons that a church needs to know to get it established? To bring the the, the believers there to maturity, and, and, and to secure it against the devil's attacks. To set it up to be fruitful in bearing witness of God's grace to the rest of their island. And so then the the question off the back of that will be, what what is it that we as a church need to hear? If we're going to be mature, if we're going to stand in East Oxford as a church that is profoundly and, and promisingly different from the culture around us, what is it that I need to hear? If I'm going to respond to the grace of Christ, if I'm going to live out his gospel. So, as I said earlier, I want to pull out three themes for us from the letter tonight. And over the next three weeks, these are going to be, I think, what we hang our understanding on. They're laid out, 
I think in Paul's description of himself in verses 1 to 3, and then, then they echo on through the letter. So look at verses 1 to 3 with me, and we see Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life. We've got this triad here, faith and knowledge and hope. So I think theme one in there is to do with faith. But it, it, it's not the faith of one person, it, it's the faith of God's elect. It's the faith of a people. And as we work through this letter, we're going to see that Paul seems to want Titus and the churches of Crete to really get that God is calling them to be a new people. A people of faith, a new nation for himself. And then theme two is knowledge, but but not just head knowledge. It's the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. It's clear in Titus that for Paul, knowing theoretical answers isn't going to be enough. We'll see that he's determined that they should know in a way that makes them act differently. That their knowledge should make them become godly. And then theme three underpins that. It's the hope of eternal life. The grasp of a a sure and certain gospel. The grace of God which has been revealed to them. If you like, he he wants them to be set apart from other Cretans as a people belonging to Jesus. And he wants it to be the way that they act that sets them apart. And he wants the motive for that to be that they understand how they have already been set apart by Jesus. Redeemed and claimed as his. So we're going to look at each of those themes in turn. And I'll show you where I'm getting them from throughout the letter. So theme one, uh, hopefully coming up there, calling a people to a new identity, or to be a new nation. And this is really brought out strongly by the way that Paul contrasts the Cretan church to the culture around them. When Liz was reading, did you see that difficult statement in chapter 1, verse 12? One of Crete's own prophets has said it. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. It it sounds like something from the referendum campaign, doesn't it? But it's not just Paul losing it and going off on a racist one. If you check out the footnote in the NIV, you'll see that he's quoting a guy called Epimenides. He's this semi-mythical Cretan philosopher. He was accounted to be one of the greats. He was really wise. Um, We've lost pretty much all of his writings, so we don't know much about him. But Paul seems to hold him in some respect. He quotes him twice, once here and, and then once in his sermon in Athens in Acts 17. And he's not just throwing dirt at the Cretans. He's quoting a Cretan prophet held in high esteem in Crete, who is summarising something about Cretan culture. And other contemporary writers testify to the same characteristics. The Cretans as a culture were famously greedy, lazy and dishonest, to the extent that some of the Greek words for lying and cheating, I'm, I'm told, are basically Crete. And it seems as well that the Cretans may have embraced their reputation, taking a degree of pride in it. It was part of their culture, it was part of the way that they saw themselves. But all through this letter, 
Paul wants Titus to be saying to the church, not you. You guys are to be different. You're not to be Cretan. You're to be something new. A people of God. So in chapter 1, verses 5 to 9, he, he gives the qualifications for elders. And we'll look at this next week. But the list includes several terms that aren't there in Timothy when he gives a similar list. And they're all about being blameless. About being in contrast to the culture around them. They're marked out as not like other Cretans. We'll see similar contrasts in chapter 2 when we get there. In chapter 3, verse 3, when he reminds Titus, once we too were like them, but not anymore. We were new people. In chapter 3, verse 7, we're heirs of a different inheritance. We'll look at, as well as chapter 2, verse 14. And Paul makes the point there that central to the gospel and central to Jesus' purpose is to call a people for himself. And he wraps it up here in 3 verse 14. Titus, our people must learn. They need to hear that to be a church on Crete is to be part of a different nation. They're set apart. They're noticeably distinct from the surrounding culture. They are not to accept its ways. They're not to acknowledge its assumptions or, or let those assumptions creep into their teaching. There are new people founded in Jesus. It's theme one, I think, through the letter. Theme two, um, this is the one that's most uncomfortable and might ruffle some feathers. And it, Salvation looks like works. In the, in the letter to Titus, it, it, it's suspiciously clear that salvation looks a lot like doing stuff. Enough so that loads of commentators have questioned whether this is really written by Paul. Maybe it's a forgery. See, Paul is, is so adamant elsewhere that nothing, nothing that he or anyone else can do will ever be enough to make them right before God. He rams that point home a few times in his letters that, that meeting laws and following rules offer no way to be safe with God. So, Think of Philippians 3, verses 4 to 7, where he says he puts no confidence in the flesh. That is, in, in his physical ability to live a good life, to be righteous, to be safe with God. And he lays out that if it were possible to be safe through works, then he would actually be doing pretty well. He's a Jew of the Jews, he's circumcised on the right day, he's from the right kind of tribe, he's faultless in his obedience to the law. But he considers all of it loss, even garbage, when set next to the promise that Christ holds out for him. It, it's fundamental to Paul's gospel, to this good news that he's preached all over the Mediterranean, that our salvation as Christians can only be achieved by the cross of Christ. That, that any claim that we could bring something to that table that we could be good enough fundamentally misunderstands both the severity of sin and the magnitude of what Jesus has done. And so whenever anyone else has begun to hint that believers need to follow laws, 
Paul has blasted them. Think of Galatians 1. Uh, And he says that anyone who teaches another gospel should be under God's curse. Or in Philippians 3 again, where some people have been saying that Christians should follow Jewish tradition and get circumcised, and Paul says, no, they are dogs, mutilators, evildoers. In Galatians 5, he, he says, I wish I'd go the whole way and cut it all off. You know, strong language. He's horrified by a works gospel that gives kudos or credit to the way that we live. And the other New Testament writers agree. Think of Hebrews 7 verse 27. You've got Jesus sacrificed for their sins once for all. And then in Hebrews 8 verse 1, he sits down at God's right hand, his work done. Nothing else is needed. Well, my go-to verse for this is is 1 Peter 3.18, which says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. I love that verse. It's job done. There's nothing to be added. Except that all the way through Titus, Paul seems to be saying that what the Cretans do matters. And that gets people edgy. So, in chapter 1, the mark of suitable elders is the way that they're to behave and the stuff that they do. And the mark of false teachers in 1 verse 16 is that by their actions they deny God. Chapter 2 is all about how the church is to be taught to behave. And did you see in in chapter 2.14, Jesus redeems a people for himself eager to do what is good. Or chapter 3 verse 1, Titus is to get them ready to do good stuff. Or what I think of the summarising crowning verses, chapter 3 verse 8 and 14. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good. These Cretan Christians, they've been called out to be a separate people of God. And the external mark of that is to be their behaviour. They're not to behave like the culture around them, the liars and the evil brutes and the lazy gluttons. And the kind of language Paul uses, especially in chapter 3, about devoting themselves to doing what is good, it's about taking up a career, taking on an honest profession. They're being called to a steady, long-term commitment to live well. Now, in case your theological antennae are twitching too violently, don't worry. I think it's pretty clear through Titus that the good works are not so that they can be saved. It's not for salvation, it's a reaction to salvation. It is for their own good. So, uh, chapter 3, verse 14, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. I think what Paul is saying is that this is what Christian maturity looks like. This is what they should aspire to. This is what productive Christianity is, how you don't waste your life. He longs for them to grow into this. It's for their own good, but it's also to meet urgent needs. It's for the good of those around them, the rest of the church that they're supposed to be building up, and and the culture around them, which is going to see Jesus primarily in the way that they behave. 
Salvation isn't by good works. That's not what he says. But in his mind, knowing Christ inevitably leads to emulating him. And you can see in in chapter 1, verse 16, he's deeply suspicious of anyone whose actions don't testify to him. Very often, in Titus, salvation looks like works. The fruits of the gospel. God's people living changed lives. So, crucially, theme three then, is that Paul has not had a, a theological shift in his old age. Now, salvation is by grace alone. The engine room for Titus and for, for the change in the behaviour of the Cretan churches, that the root cause which is going to make them stand out as different is knowledge of the grace of God. So we've got that in, in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Again, everything that they do is going to be in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised in the beginning of time, and which now, at his appointed season, he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to Paul. The sovereign God has good things planned. And do you see that the first thing he says to Titus in verse 4 is based around that? Chin up, Titus. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. How are you going to go about this mammoth task I'm setting you? In a few weeks or months, putting these quarrelsome Cretan churches in order, you're going to do it knowing that grace and peace are yours in God. Everything that matters is accomplished already. You have complete security in Jesus' salvation. And that comes up again in each section, in each chapter. The motivation for living well is a deep knowledge of the grace that they've received. That's what, in in chapter 2, verse 11 to 14, is going to teach them to live differently. In chapter 3, verses 3 to 8, it's understanding what Jesus has done that will inspire them and make them devote themselves to goodness. If if you're not sure about Christianity, if you're talking to someone who's not sure about Christianity, who doesn't know how they stand with it, or, or is suspicious of its claims, or this incredible arrogance of telling other people how to live. Chapter 3, verses 3 to 8 are lovely. See how Paul describes himself and Titus, not as better than others, they were in exactly the same situation. 3 verse 3. At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. He, he's not painting himself well, is he? But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. It's glorious, isn't it? It's a concise and clear statement of the Gospel. Being a Christian is about having been in a dark place and having been shown a way out. 
having been treated far better than we deserve, with, with a promise of even more to come. And so, any command that Paul gives about how to live, it's never the case of do this or you're in trouble. It's never a list of blind commands to follow. Rather, it's remember this mind-boggling generosity and love that you've received. Don't forget that. Live accordingly. In a couple of months, Titus is going to leave Crete. He's being called onwards to keep working with Paul elsewhere, to keep planting other churches. But they want this Cretan church to stand firm and mature once they go on. They want it to keep going so that the Christians there will be able to support and encourage each other and so that they'll be visibly different from the Cretans around them. Witnesses of a gospel, an amazing good news available to everyone. And and so they need to know that gospel deeply for themselves. And then they need to let it work out in changed lives. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good. What do we need to hear? There there are going to be challenges to us throughout this letter. So, uh, in chapter 1, do pray for me as I prepare for that next week, uh, about what leadership looks like, and the qualifications of elders, and how we react against false teaching, and what that looks like. In chapter 2 and chapter 3, there are going to be challenges about the way that we minister to one another, and the way that we interact with the culture around us, what being a church is like. Tonight, I've got one impertinent question to ask of us as individuals there. Paul and Titus are in a different context to us. They're in Crete as an apostolic band. They're seeing these churches briefly and then they're moving on and they need the churches to be set up and established and mature behind them because the apostles won't be there to teach them. We're in a different context. We do need to set up good leadership as a church. And as elders and pastors, we, we, we have to keep thinking about that. And frankly, if you perceive that we're not meeting chapter 1's instruction, you should be challenging us or we're going somewhere different. But actually, in Oxford, I think it's probably fair to say that the churches are fairly steady and stable. But there's a big turnover of people. It's not the leaders who are moving on. It's often the congregation. That's just Oxford. I don't know if this is still true of our church, but it was said a few years ago that the average time people had been in the congregation at Magdalen Road was about three years. It's often less than that at this evening service, isn't it? That, That brings challenges and opportunities. It's not a bad thing. But I think for Titus, the challenge was to find good leaders and safe pairs of hands to look after this church in the long term. For us, the challenge is maybe to minister well to people who are only here for a short time. And so, my impertinent question is this. What is your Christian ambition? What is it that you want to get from church? Or to accomplish, or to achieve when you come here? It may be that you're not sure how much longer you're going to be around. You might be conscious you're moving on soon, in in a year, 
or in a few months or even in a few weeks because it's nearly the end of the term. Well, sometimes in Oxford or places like this it's easy to church hop and to bounce around without putting down roots. And we might go one place for the preaching, pop somewhere else because they sing well and, and we've got friends in another church so we drop in there sometimes. And if you're only around short term, that's appropriate, that's fine. But what's your ambition in church? The churches that Titus is to set up are to be profoundly long-termly devoted to loving each other, as if it's a profession, doing good for one another, serving together, because that is the kind of people that Jesus is calling them to be. If you're only here short-term, we love having you here, welcome. But is your church ambition to keep on a fringe or to be stuck in Finding a church when you move on that you can get your teeth into, that you can be known by. Somewhere that you can serve and be served. Somewhere that you can learn and be taught to devote yourself to doing good. Loving those around you and being loved back. Because Paul's saying that that's what mature Christianity looks like. On the other hand, if you're about longer term, Let me encourage you to to make it and keep it your Christian ambition to be stuck in. Either here or in another place. I don't mean getting on loads of rotors, though that's useful, there's gaps to be filled. I, I mean, if you possibly can, then get yourself involved in a home group. They're the pastoral engine of the church. Or or make a habit of sticking around for 20 minutes after each service and even talking to someone you don't know yet. I'm rubbish at that. Or or meditate regularly on the gospel for yourself in your quiet times, but then deliberately remind yourself, Jesus has saved you and each of the other Christians here. So write a few of us into your prayer diary. Lift up the church before your Lord. Devote yourself with that long-term commitment to loving the people that God has put you near. Or on the third hand, anatomically questionable Uh, if you're someone who's already put down roots and you've been here some time and expect to be here much longer great let me remind you of this call keep the ambition to love this church alive because it's harder than it sounds isn't it you know how sometimes when you're talking to a new person you realise that they're only going to be around for a few more months and part of you switches off But it's a privilege of our church that we get loads of folk visiting us for a short time and then being sent on to other churches. And it's a profoundly good thing if we can equip and train and encourage them so that they can land and serve elsewhere. And sometimes we do that just through our teaching. Sometimes we can do that through hospitality. Inviting people around for Sunday lunch or, or, or going to the pub after an evening service. Or, or sometimes it's praying with people. Or praying for them, even if they don't know. Or simply remembering names and asking how the week went. And it will take a lot of discipline. It certainly doesn't come naturally to me. It will take energy and emotional investment. It's hard, but as you scan over Titus this week, which is your homework, by the way, 
You, you see that churches are meant to be devoted to one another. Let's make that our ambition. I'm going to pray and then I'll hand over to Kitty.